Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Lord, we pray your blessings upon the public reading of Scripture. And now do the work by the Spirit of God, which only you can do. And we thank you for it, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Friendly. A reminder uh, that this Friday evening at uh, uh, the McCready home, on in Nicole's home, you are invited. If you're here this morning, uh, you are invited uh, to have a family movie night and a cookout with us at 6 p.m. at our home. Burgers, hot dogs, s'mores, bring a chair. Uh, I want to encourage you to come and be a part. The weather looks like it's going to be great this time around, and so... Uh, looking forward to uh, what the Lord will do and encourage us through on uh, Friday night at 6 uh, p.m. As we had the opportunity to uh, watch the video both in the prayer time and as part of the offering with regards to Iran, I'm struck by uh, the missionaries, and I don't recall their name, but who lost their three children in a car accident. And... Um, they indicated that the loss of their children were seeds for the harvest of the gospel in Iran. And that uh, really uh, struck me in that video. And um, I look down the row and I look at my children and I think, am I willing to allow a seed to fall to the ground of one of my children in order to reap a harvest somewhere for the gospel? That's a pretty tough question for a parent to answer. But it's also a question as a church that we have to answer. Because when we look around and we think about the next generation within this congregation, those of us who may be a little older have a responsibility to pass a heritage of faith on, not just parents, although the role of parents is important, but all of us together to pass a heritage of faith down to the next generation. And are we willing to do that? Are we willing in this congregation of people to see children raised up to be missionaries? Are we ourselves even willing to go 
Are we willing to see young men and young ladies be bold for the gospel, realizing that our training and developing of them may be at the cost of their life? That our process of discipleship and our process of development, depending on where the Lord may send them, are we willing to say, yes, Lord, here we are, send us. And so I pray today that that is the message that would resonate within the walls of this congregation. That we're bold enough for the gospel to be willing to pray a prayer that says, here I am, send me. But also, Lord, here we are. Send those among us that we're training up and developing. And this is why we have to take seriously our responsibility to grow the next generation of leaders within the Lord's church. I think it's probably the first time I've ever stood before you in a t-shirt. And I'm doing so in order to illustrate a point. I'm standing before you in a t-shirt because on this t-shirt there is a message. And it says, transformed by the gospel. And I wonder if that's a message that we truly take to heart. Do we really believe that the gospel is transformational? Or is it just a slogan that we're willing to put on a t-shirt to say, hey, this is who we are and, you know, this is what we think and you might can be a better person if you attend here? Or do we really believe in the transforming work of the gospel and people who were once children of darkness who now become children of light and there is a transformation which takes place by a work of the Holy Spirit within them? I'm not willing to bear myself to t-shirt slogans that don't exist in reality. What I long for and what I desire for myself, for my family, for this church, for this community is an engagement with the gospel such that we see transformation based upon what the scriptures communicate and tell us. We ought to expect that. We ought to expect that someone who names Jesus as Lord and Savior experiences a transformation. It's not just a process of getting better step by step by step, but there is a transformation of the soul, of the mind, that sets the affections upon God that longs for something different than what was. The things that appealed in the past life, the things that were desirous in the past life are no longer desirous, but there is a transformation that is brought by an encounter with the living God. I believe that that is what Scripture teaches us. There is no 12-step program to getting right with God. It is an encounter with a person. It is an encounter with Jesus. And if you are willing to encounter Jesus, and if you're willing to lay aside all of the things that have, are from your past, if you're willing to lay aside your thoughts and your ideas of who you should be and where you should go, if you're willing to lay aside those things, an encounter with Jesus Christ will transform you. If you're here this morning and you are struggling, 
You're wondering about your direction. You're wondering about your life. Maybe you're struggling with things of the past that continue to tickle at you and continue to pull at you. I want to assure you this morning, there is transformation when you encounter Christ. In the book of Revelation, Jesus told one of the seven churches that you need to go back. You've lost your first love. You need to go back and do your first works over again. I think sometimes we have to find ourselves back at the altar once again. Even when we've walked with the Lord for a season of time. That there are times when we must find ourselves back at the altar where we first met Jesus. That time where we first came to him and we felt the lifting of the weight of sin off of our shoulder. And we felt that God had done a work and we said, Jesus, I want to walk in the way with you. Sometimes we have to come back to that spot and recall what God has done. And move from that spot in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because there is transformation by the gospel. It's not simply a t-shirt slogan. What I hope is that as we might don these t-shirts and wear them around. That there would be some real gospel conversations that would come from it. That someone would say, what does that mean? How were you transformed by the gospel? What would be your response? Because there's a lot of good, moral unbelievers in the world. There are a lot of unbelievers today, some who I don't even know would stop and help me on the side of the road. Who would give me the shirt off their back. Who would help me in many, many ways. And if someone saw you or me and said, how were you transformed by the gospel? What is our testimony and what is our response? We had a beautiful opportunity on Friday night during the prayer meeting to hear some testimonies of God's grace at work. Some things that were transformed by the gospel. It's a message that you can say. I want to say you wear it proudly. I didn't know my brother was going to wear his shirt this morning. <laughs> I've been transformed by the gospel. The gospel has made a difference in my life. I know what it is to have been engaged in a toxic relationship that had it gone in a certain direction, my life would have been a mess. But the gospel transforms. And the gospel does things and it takes you places that you wouldn't ever expect to go. The gospel gives you blessings in your life that you wouldn't ever expect to have. The gospel lifts you up to places that you would never expect to see. There is transformation by the gospel. And we have to be a people that earnestly longs for that transformation in ourselves and also in others. But I will tell you this morning as a pastor, I'm tired of and I'm not willing to allow or to be part of a place where we're just content to allow people to stay in their sins and not get delivered, not be transformed, not be changed. There has to be a change. There has to be a place where you and I can get to where we see the transformation of the gospel at work within us because there are people who are giving their entire lives for blood is being shed today because of this testimony that the gospel is able to transform who are we to sit here in a posh environment comfortable 
as we are and say that we don't have to worry about things like we just saw a little while ago. In fact, the Lord is going to call us to an account of a great measure. How many sermons have I sat under? How many Bible studies have I been a part of? How many opportunities have I had and wasted? If we're transformed by the gospel and we say we want to believe the word of God and we want to live in the word of God and we want to be focused on the word of God and we want you to bring revival to our community and revival to our city, Lord, then we ought to expect transformation. We ought to expect change. We ought to expect things that were broken to come back together again. We ought to expect there to be a change in our own lives. I can't stand behind the pulpit and say I've got it all together. God, do it on them. I say, God, transform me. There's still room for transformation by the gospel. I believe that is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. You come into Christ. He talks in Ephesians about the need for unity, the focus of unity, the desire for unity in the church. He talks about the gifts that have been given, the various gifts of teacher, and pastor, and evangelist, and apostle, and prophet, all of these gifts that have been given to the church in order that you and I would stand in unity so there is continued transformation. It's not simply a stepping in, yes, I've came and I've knelt at the altar and I've said a prayer, Jesus come into my heart, and then I'm just like I was before. There's no change. The same things that attracted me before continue to attract me now. B.C., there's no different than after Christ. I like the same things. I watch the same movies. I hang around the same people. I talk the same thing. My language is the same. I look at the same thing. Everything's the same. I've just now, I've got my past into glory. That's not what the Bible articulate the bible says that at that moment of salvation that yes there is this judicial declaration but there is also a transformation a change in the affections of an individual that places them on the things of christ the desires of christ for christ and his church are we all happy to take Jesus on a journey with us into every private place we go throughout the week, letting him know the thoughts in our mind and the places that we go? An encounter with Jesus must transform us. Paul in Ephesians 4, and he's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how the gifts to the church work, and that is for a purpose. He explains the gifts, and in verse 25, where our text begins this morning, he uses this word, therefore. 
based upon what I have already said previously, based upon sharing with you about the working of the gifts and why God has given these gifts in order to help build a unity in the church and build love in the church and build a desire for us to dwell together in unity and in one accord towards one focus of living for Jesus and be effective in the kingdom while we have breath in our lungs, understanding the working of the gifts. Therefore, now... These are some actions that ought to be present within your life based upon the gifts that have been given in order to bring you into unity with one another. So what he's not saying is, go and tell all the wicked people that they shouldn't lie, steal, be it angry, and whatever. He's saying, what I am telling you is, you're in the church. You're a child of God. God has put within the church gifts that are operational in order to help you become unified in the faith. Therefore, understanding how the gifts have been put in operation, Jesus' desire for unity in his church, I want you to walk out some very specific things. Church, God's people. I'm going to tell you, God's people, that I want you to act in certain ways based upon being transformed by the gospel. The therefore tells us that what has come before in this passage points us to the foundation of what Paul is writing in verses 25 through 32. Because Jesus demands unity, Jesus doesn't request unity in his church. He doesn't request it. He demands it. He demands unity in the church. Because Jesus has gifted leaders to bring unity in the church. Because unity is born out of consistent and faithful doctrinal teaching. And because unity is born out of our maturity in Christ, Paul is imploring believers to act in a way which exemplifies that unity in the Lord. That change, those actions that ought to come from that transformation is not simply for our personal benefit, our personal betterment. It is for the glory of Jesus to stand amidst a unified church. Why God wants you delivered if you struggle with any secret sins, it's not just so you'll be delivered and say, hallelujah, I'm delivered. It's so that his church would then be unified. Because as long as you struggle in private, the church is not unified. You may say, I'm not harming anyone else. I'm not hurting anyone else. I'm just struggling within my own self. I want to affirm to you that you're giving placehold to the enemy even in those secret areas of life that brings disunity not just to a local body of believers but to the church universal this is why the lord takes it so seriously so we do not have the opportunity to sit back and play footsie with our sins paul's saying you have to deal with these things and we're going to talk specifically about them and part of the reason why. In verse 25, 
He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. First, replacing falsehood with truth. Replacing falsehood with truth. Speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. Passage comes out of Zechariah 8 and 16, which essentially says, speak truth to one another. A noted change in the Ephesians 4.15 rendering of it, as the Apostle Paul uses Zechariah 18, he changes the preposition. Not speak truth to one another, but speak truth with your neighbor. Meaning, those who you are in fellowship with. A relationship built with others around you. Speak truth with one another, because we are members of one another. Falsehood in this case is not simply blatant lies, telling a lie to someone. It's not just that. It also has to do with the idea of being a man pleaser, saying what you think people want to hear so that you can then be affirmed by them. Not speaking the truth, but saying what, what you think will tickle someone else's ear. Later in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, We must act with a sincere heart as Christ did, and not with eye service as men pleasers. Yeah, I can be kind to you, and I can say what I think you want to hear in order to get something out of you. Or I can be kind because I have been transformed by the gospel, and sometimes that kindness may require me to speak something difficult in your life, or vice versa. The first way is manipulative. The second way is Christ-exalting. Verse 26, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. A mark of the old nature is a bad temper that results in unjustified anger. Paul's quoting here from Psalms 4 and 4. Be angry, but do not sin. There's anger, which is righteous anger. We see that in our Lord in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him closely to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. So Jesus walks into church one day and in the church there is a guy with a withered hand. And Jesus, showing compassion, wants to heal the guy with the withered hand. But the religious leaders, knowing what Jesus has done, sit back and look and they want to catch him. They want to accuse him. They want to come against him. And Jesus, seeing a man in need, a man who is struggling, is going to heal the man. But the religious leaders are looking down their nose and saying, if you heal this man, you're actually committing a work. It takes work to heal someone. And because you're 
committing a work on the Sabbath day, you're in violation of the law, and it makes the Lord angry. At their hardness of heart, that someone is sitting here and is hurting, and you're sitting in church and won't do a thing about it, and you're the preachers. And it makes the Lord angry and grieved. Righteous anger. John 2, 13 through 17, another instance where the Lord is angry. At the Passover, he's up to the temple. And he goes in and he sees those who are selling in the temple, oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he makes a whip out of cords. And he drives them out of the temple area with the sheep and with the oxen. He pours out the coins of the money changers. He overturns their tables. And to those who are selling doves, he says, take these things away from here and stop making my father's house a place of business. The disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus sees what is going on. No, you know, if I... If I were to come in church and do that, people would say, he is mad. <laughs> Woo, he was angry this morning. Maybe you say that after the messages sometimes. <laughs> but we would think in the natural realm, when I look at that, I think, okay, if I were to do that, I would probably be sinning. But Jesus is able to do it without sin. So what was going on in this situation? It would have not been uncommon for money changers to have been around the temple. It would have not been uncommon for people to sell uh, uh, animals for sacrifice around the temple. In fact, in some ways that would have been necessary because people were coming from long distances at times, from other countries at times, and so there were simple simply doing a type of business in order to help facilitate the sacrifices that were necessary because people would come into town with uh, coins and money that was not like the money that was accepted at the temple, and people would have to exchange that. There would have to be people who may not have the animals that were necessary for the prescribed sacrifice. But what's going on? Once again, religious leaders taking advantage of people. When the money changers come, we're not giving you a fair price, but we're inflating the price because of your religious devotion and your affection. So because you know you've got to come and make a sacrifice, because you know you've got to change money, and there's no place else to do it but right here, we're going to charge you a premium. Have you ever been to a ball game and bought a hot dog? You pay 15 bucks for a hot dog that costs 25 cents at the store. <laughs> it's an inflated price because they know they've got you in a contained area. And this is the exact same thing that was happening at the temple. People would look at your animal that you brought. Not quite good enough. But here's the newest model. This one's just right for the sacrifice. Take this one. Jesus sees it happening and he gets angry because people are preying on the religious affections of his people and it makes him mad what's going on. 
He's angry and he doesn't sin. A righteous anger. You can be angry and not sin. But even in anger, the Apostle Paul says, don't sleep on it. Don't allow yourself to stew on it. Don't allow your anger to break the bonds of brotherhood in the church. The passion of anger, even if it's righteous anger, has to be released and left to the hands of the Lord. God has to deal with it. I've struggled with that at times. Tossing over in bed. Thinking about things. Wondering about things. How would I manage it? How would I deal with it? What would I do? And yet there was one thing that I should have done before I laid my head on the pillow. Is trusted it to the Lord. To know that he will work it out for his glory. And it's a burden that he will have to manage that I cannot carry. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. The thought here in terms of stealing is both taking outright what does not belong to you, but also what you have not rightfully earned. You or I have not rightfully earned. There are probably not a lot of us with the temptation to outright take things that don't belong to us. But Paul also means in this idea or this notion of replacing stealing with giving is that we are to labor with our own hands. And the sense here that he is giving is to labor hard to where there's even a sense of exhaustion. Have you ever had those days where you're working and you get finished at the end of the day and you're exhausted but it feels good? Because you've put in a hard day's work. You know you've done a hard day's work. You've accomplished some things and it actually feels good that you have done that. For believers, we have to be careful that we do not take a paycheck for work that has not been completed or work that has been done in a lazy manner. That's stealing. My parents had a family business I grew up in. I've seen lazy workers. I've seen people steal equipment. I've seen people take supplies for their own personal use. I've seen people use company time as personal time. All of that is a form of stealing. Paul says that we should labor and we should work hard. Not so that we can enrich ourselves. Not so that we can be rich. Not so that we can have a lot of things. He doesn't say, no, do this so that you're going to have all the money that you need. So that you can have a new car. So that you can have a new home. So that you can have a better couch or whatever it is. That's not why we're to labor. That's not why we're to not steal. We're to labor and to work hard so that what? We have something to share with someone else. That we're able to see needs of people who are around us, people who are in relationship with, people who are in the church, people who we're in fellowship with. We're to labor and work hard so that we can see the needs of others and help. Working hard to be a blessing to other people. 
Verse 29. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes this morning with these things, but just realize that my toes have been stepped on for the last couple months in anticipation of. So, this is a word for all of us, myself included. 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Replace unwholesome talk with that which edifies. Understanding the gifts at operation to help us grow into unity within the church, these things should be evident of those of us or should be becoming evident with those of us who are in the fellowship who say that we have been transformed by the gospel. Watching what we say. The unwholesome talk here, the word unwholesome means putrid or rancid, rotten, decaying. The words that come to our mouths, come out of our mouths, ought to have a sense of grace attached to them. Those who say they use, like to use salty words in their language might say that salty words aren't that bad. It's only that society has attached a negative meaning to them. That God doesn't really care. God does care. Because he says right here in his word he cares. Just like we are to work hard so that we have something to share with others, we're also to speak thoughtfully so that we offer grace to others. Words and language that are perceived by others as crude or profane or cursing does not build up the bonds of brotherhood in the church and it does not tell of God's grace at work in your life. It can also apply to the context of what is being said. Sometimes we can have a tendency to gossip or complain even in religious language. I need to share with you a prayer request. So and so... Has a real problem, and we need to intercede and pray. The content of what we speak must also communicate grace to others. What I have found often in life is a lot of the things that I worry about often don't ever come to pass. And if I would just take it to the Lord and leave it with Him and be quiet for a while and see God work, that things would work out a whole lot better than if I insert my mouth into them. There are things that we want to see changed, things that we want to see different. We have to take it to the Lord. I always remember, and I've shared this several times before, but Nicole's grandmother, who was a, a minister, would have some of the ladies of the church when she was a, a, a widowed lady living there not too far from the church, some of the ladies of the church would often stop by and after church on Sunday and they would have Rose Preacher. And they would talk to Sister Lambert about the sermon and about the preacher. And Sister Lambert, giving them an opportunity, would simply say, well, he has his good points as well. Let's pray for him. And she would get on her knees and begin to intercede. We have to ask God to help and intervene in situations that are beyond our control. My wife will tell you that I don't like to sit on things. 
when something's bothering me, I want to deal with it right then. I want to manage it right then and move on from it and get past it. I want to manage it right at that moment. And sometimes that may not be the best thing to do. Sometimes the best thing to do is to take it to the Lord, watching both the words that are coming out of our mouth and the content of the things that we are saying. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. A reminder here, every one of these things are for the believers in the church. If we try to force these on unbelievers, we force them into legalism. We ought to expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. And we ought to expect Christians to act like Christians. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's connected to the idea that it grieves the Holy Spirit when our language is unwholesome, when we're not acting in a way that shows the transformation which has happened by the gospel. The Holy Spirit is a personal being, and our actions can grieve the Spirit of God. In order to live for Christ in a way that builds unity in the church for the glory of Jesus, we have to live and act in such a manner that the Holy Spirit is not grieved by what we do. Lying and man-pleasing grieves the Holy Spirit. Anger that results in sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Theft and laziness grieves the Holy Spirit. Unwholesome language grieves the Holy Spirit. We should not grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed us to that day of redemption, that time when we look on the face of the Lord. We ought to try to be as close now to who we imagine we will be in heaven those qualities, those characteristics, to pull that into who we are right now. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This is kind of a summary statement that the Apostle Paul lays at the feet of the believers in the Ephesian church, and it's a variety of ideas or thoughts to be avoided. Bitterness refers to resentment that leaves a sour attitude or animosity towards someone. It's a harbored resentment that prevents reconciliation. Anger and wrath are paired to deal with how bitterness can express itself. Animosity is also the fruit of these responses. Another way that these emotions can express themselves is as clamor and slander towards others, which are a verbalized way of attacking people. The emphasis in all of these things, grammatically in the passage, is with a sincere resolve to get it done. The old saying from the boy on the farm, get her done. Make it happen now. Don't wait. Work at it. Get her done. The negative traits that are mentioned bring division and conflict and fight against unity in the church, which cannot be achieved in the midst of these things. If we want revival, we want God's work, we want transformation in people's lives, we want to see God deliver, God heal, we have to be focused like a laser, on bringing unity within our midst for the glory of Jesus. Which brings me back to the point that I did not intentionally skip in verse 27. 
It says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. While well, it's early on in the listing, lying, anger, theft, unwholesome language, bitterness, all of that can give the devil an opportunity. It'll give the devil an opportunity in your life, and it'll give the devil an opportunity within the church. I'd like us to look quickly at Genesis chapter 4. Cain was upset because his offering was not accepted like his brother's Abel offering was accepted. We can debate and talk about why that might have been, but that's not the point of this passage for today. Genesis 4, 5 through 8. When Cain found out that his offering had not been accepted as Abel's had, it says, so Cain became very angry and his face was gloomy. So what happened to Cain? He became angry and gloomy. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face gloomy? Cain, you have a choice. If you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain talked to his brother Abel, and it happened that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. God says to Cain, Sin is lurking at the door. In other words, the devil is ready to take an opportunity based on this door that is potentially going to open here if you allow it within your anger or within your, uh, uh, within your lying or within your stealing or within your language or within your bitterness. This door is going to open here if you allow it. And the enemy is going to use this door to compel you to commit sin. And what happened to Cain when he committed that sin is it brought a curse upon him. So what you and I must understand is these things that the Apostle Paul has listed for us and what we have just shared, if you continue or I continue to allow them to operate in our life and we don't deal with these things, what we are doing is we are opening a door to the enemy. This thing come right on in. Now you may say, I might be angry, but I'm still a good person. I can still handle it. I might talk like a drunken sailor, but I still love Jesus. And exactly what you're doing is you're opening the door for the enemy to come in and to get a foothold in your life. You're allowing him to come in by an unwillingness to deal with the sin after we say we've been transformed by the gospel. Now we're saying, enemy, I'm not willing to deal with these things. I've got a right to be angry. I have a right to be bitter. 
I have a right to not have to tell that person the truth every time. I have a right to take these things or to take this extra time at lunch or to do these things because my employer don't care about me anyway. What you're allowing is the enemy to get a foothold in your life. You're giving the devil an opportunity, and the devil will take that opportunity for another opportunity, and another opportunity, and another opportunity. And there cannot be within the church unity without deliverance from that. Now, we have all had struggles in our life. We've all wrestled with anger, I'm sure. We've all wrestled with bitterness, I'm sure. We've all wrestled with people who have done things to us, who have said things about us that aren't true or whatever else. We've all wrestled with that. But if we're going to sit there and we're going to continue to allow it to breed in our life and not become delivered from it, You will never be able to be where God wants you to be, and this church will never be what it needs to be for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just you dealing with it on your own, but I want you to look around the room, and the reason that you and I have to deal with the things that the Bible calls sin and the things that the Bible says have to be dealt with, the things that have to be brought into the open and be dealt with in a realistic, uh, powerful way that really brings transformation where we pray over people and we start coming over and we start finding open doors in people's lives and we shut the door. The door in your life doesn't need to be open because there's other people outside this church who God may bring who need a witness of a unified church to exist in unity because they need deliverance. They need to be healed. Their marriages need to be restored. Their children need to be raised up in a way in which they're willing to go and carry the gospel somewhere else. But we can't do it if us in this room don't bring it together. And I don't know. I'm not saying I don't know of little things going around or anything like that. But what I know is the Bible brought us this message today. I didn't plan today to preach on this word. I just go on verse by verse, verse by verse, verse by verse, verse by verse. In fact, the week before my, my wife and I were away a couple days last week, the week before, I mentioned to Pastor Noel. I said, Pastor Noel, if you want to preach in Ephesians, you can. If not, I'll pick it up when I come back. He said, no, I think I'm going to preach in Ephesians. I didn't get through what I wanted to get through the week before that. All this could have been up in the air. But today, God says, this verse is for us. This verse is for us. I don't believe that God's word goes out void. So we have to think about, I have to think about and deal with this. I'm going to wear this t-shirt out. I want somebody to say, how have you been transformed by the gospel? I hope you'll get one. They say they're 15 bucks. You have them for free. If you'll wear it today and you'll tell a testimony, take it, take it, take it. Because we got to be serious about this. And when we do, the beauty that God will perform in our midst of healing broken relationships, broken people. We said we want to be a church for broken people. What God will do, how God will move, how God will transform, how God will bring transformation to our community. We'll step back and we will rejoice in ways that we have never perceived. I believe it. We're going to stand together. We're going to worship for a moment.